passage time, right? So, honest question. Let me ask you this question. And again, I'm not looking for answers or hands or anything. Does anybody here like to be told when they're doing something wrong? That's kind of a tough question, isn't it? All right. Depends on what you're doing, who's telling you, you know, do you have I mean, but I mean, I mean, really, when somebody comes up and looks you in the face and says, no, 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 that's wrong. How do you feel about that? That's a little word we call confrontation. Sometimes confrontation can be helpful, right? We need to be corrected. We may not like it, but we need to be corrected. Um, But when somebody comes up and says, no, you're, well, this morning, actually, we're driving in, and I said something about possums giving people rabies, and Hannah said they can't have rabies. Their their body temperature's too low, they can't have rabies. I'm like, well, I've always heard that they had rabies. She's like, well, they can't. I'm like, oh, stand corrected, okay? I had another episode this week. At 7, 10 a.m. on Thursday morning, I went to the dentist. I left the dentist at 8.50. So anybody wondering how that went, uh, there you go, Okay. And, and while she's cleaning my teeth and she was doing a thorough job, a very thorough job, I'm pretty sure she cleaned my dirty mind because she just kept on spraying that water in. And I'm like, oh my gosh. She's like, suction. I'm like, so what, are we in surgery here? But anyway, she just flat out, she said, you're not flossing. I'm like, not currently. You know, what do you mean? Like, you know, right now? You're, you're you know. <laughs> and she was right. And, and, and what's funny is I had hoped that my eight, nine days prior of water picking and flossing and coconut oil pulling would fool her. But it had been a long time since I'd had my teeth cleaned, and I just got called out, plain and simple. She didn't ask me. She didn't say, hey, have you been flossing? She said, you're not flossing. And I felt like it was my mom, and I'm like, I'm sorry, mom. So then the question becomes now, in the current state of affairs, am I going to start flossing? I don't know. I hope she doesn't ever watch this because, like, she'll punish me the next time I go in in May. She was mean, y'all. I mean, y'all, y'all need to pray for her. There's devils in her. Um, but then she showed me the right way to floss. And honest to goodness, I don't think I'd, I mean, I'd always used floss to clean between my teeth. She said, you're supposed to go down below the gum line. And, and I'm like, below the gum line? You know, what is this witchcraft? What are you talking about? I'm going to put a piece of string under my gum. But, but she showed me, and I mean, like, she had me hold a mirror while I'm laying there with these cool sunglasses on so that she didn't spit my eyes. And, and she showed me, and that doggone it, if that floss didn't go below my gum line and come back up. I'm like, <gasps> But she showed me the right thing to do. She confronted me. I don't know if it was in kindness, but she confronted me. And she told me what I wasn't doing or what I was doing wrongly. And then she showed me the right way to do it. Now in May, the proof will be in the pudding because I go back in six months for regular cleaning, Lord willing. And hopefully I don't have to go through that again. So hopefully I I don't get dentally eviscerated again because that's exactly what happened. And that's not very fun. Well, today, you're like, what are you talking about? What in the world? Well, today we're going to see the Pharisees about to feel the wrath of Jesus' plain-speak confrontation. And he's telling them that they are doing something, or really, really pretty much all things, wrong. And then he's going to spend the whole chapter, which we're not going to get through today, laying down what they're doing wrong, 
and then what should be done in light of what they're doing wrong. So today we're going to read publicly Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. I didn't think we'd ever get out of Matthew 22, but here we are. Um, But we're going to read this, and as we read, we stand out of reverence for the Word of God and the God of the Word. We do solemnly and confidently confess that these are the very words of God this morning. You want to hear God speak? You're about to. Not me, but these words. Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant." Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would, in your power, speak to us, correct us, confront us, and build us up more like Jesus than when we came in this building this morning. Help us, Holy Spirit, to hear, understand, comprehend, and then go live out the words that we are seeing here today. We ask for your help and expect it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I'm getting slide change error up here, by the way, Andrew. If it doesn't, we'll try it again. If it doesn't work, we'll see what happens. So we're going to start here in uh, 23.1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now, I know you're tired of hearing this, but we're still on Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. Okay? That's where we're at chronologically. And Jesus is still in the temple after having been approached and reproached by the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and any other C's and Ann's that could come and correct and rebuke him, they think. And we said last week that Jesus finally turned the tables on the Pharisees and asked them a question that ended with them being speechless. And then the text concluding was saying that from that point on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And now, starting here in chapter 23, we see Jesus' last public message. And this will be the last time he addresses uh, those who are standing around watching and listening as his public ministry comes to an end. He'll speak in this message all the way through chapter 23. And those we have that we see here in verse 1, he's speaking here to the crowds and his disciples. And then in chapter 24, Jesus will leave the temple and will begin addressing his disciples alone and directly and continue to do that through the end of chapter 25. So that's the next three chapters set up for you. So here in chapter 23, this is his last public address. And it's a doozy. And he is not happy. You say, well, Jesus didn't get mad. Oh, yes, he did. Scripture says, be angry and sin not. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, but the anger of God, guess what, does accomplish the righteousness of God. So Jesus is mad here. No no pulling punches, okay? 
But here, after silencing the Pharisees and after shutting the mouths of all of his accusers and refusers, Jesus turns his words and his attention to the crowds of people in the temple who have gathered there to listen to him teach, and also to the twelve, these twelve guys who followed him for these past few years all over Israel and beyond. And the focus of his address here is going to be the religious leader's failure to represent God rightly and how the people should see and hear these religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And boy, it is quite the treatise. And so he says here in verses 2 and 3, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach... But do not practice. Boy, he just came out swinging, didn't he? From the get-go, we see that Jesus is being direct and clear. There's no cloudiness. There's no question. There's no parabolic mystery here. Okay? And his laser focus centers on the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we've looked at these folks before, but let's make sure we're clear who he's talking about here. The Pharisees were a group of people who wanted to show their separateness from the common folk of Israel by strictly interpreting, prescribing, and keeping God's law. The word Pharisee comes from an Aramaic word which means to separate, divide, or distinguish. These Pharisees majored in the law of God, studying and dissecting the scriptures of the Jewish people, but also adding to that scripture an extensive set of traditions and oral teachings to supplement that law. Keeping the law and their traditions is what set them apart in their minds and in the eyes of the common folk. The Pharisees were professional religionists. Their lives and their livelihoods centered around study and application of the law and of their own traditions. And what you need to know most importantly here, the common man would have looked up to them as the model of religious life. That's what they were trying to attain to. So if you weren't a Pharisee, you're just a common fisherman, you're just a common guy walking around, you're looking at the Pharisees and you're thinking, these guys are what I should be. I should strive to be like them. Now the scribes were their own unique group of religious Jews whose primary roles involved copying manuscripts, teaching and interpreting the scriptures and various other Jewish literature. And they would advise other religious groups like the Pharisees and Sadducees on particulars of the law and sometimes deciding legal cases involving the law. Some scribes were Pharisees, some scribes were Sadducees or maybe even Levites. But they are their own specific group even as they function in the midst of other groups. So... The scribes and the Pharisees would be seen as examples of Jewish piety. They were the religious ruling class in Israel at this time. And so Jesus opens his address here by saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And what he's saying there is that they hold a particular influence on the religious dealings of the Jewish people. There actually were things called Moses' seat in most synagogues where the teaching rabbi would sit and teach from. If you remember, they sat down when they taught. And what they would sit down in is Moses' seat. It was a sign of authority in teaching. Those of you that have been or are still in college, the person who's the head of a department is the what? He's the chair. 
Okay, so that's exactly the thought pattern we have here. Moses' seat, they, they had the religious chair. They had the authority. Uh, they had uh, the, the, the ability to say, that's where I sit when I teach. And people went, ooh, you sit in Moses' seat. Yeah, do. Yeah, do. Okay? They were the leader. They were the top of the rung. They showed their authority that way. Um, And the scribes and Pharisees were the ones who would usually sit in this seat in the various synagogues, which show their place in the hierarchy of religious life. Now, remember that word hierarchy. It's going to be important later. Theirs was the place of authority. It was their job to understand the law of God and to help others understand it as well. So Jesus says in verse 3, Do and observe what they tell you, but... Don't do the works that they do. For they preach, Jesus says, but do not practice. Now this can seem a little tricky because why would Jesus tell the crowd and his disciples to do and observe whatever the scribes and the Pharisees tell them to? Because I think we're all pretty sure, we're all pretty clear that Jesus is not in favor of the teaching or as he had called it before, the leaven of the Pharisees. He absolutely was against it. He absolutely condemned it. What are they teaching from? Well, some, they're teaching from the Scriptures. They're teaching from the Word of God. So as they read the law, as they open up the scroll, do what you hear from the law there. They're reading and speaking the very words of God from those scrolls. So do what they say as far as the Word of God goes. John MacArthur said, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. So... And that's what he's saying here. He's like, they're going to say some right things. So, so do those things that are right from the law. But don't do as they do. They're reading and speaking the very words of God from those scrolls. So do what the scrolls say as far as the word of God, as far as the word of God goes. But Jesus says, do not do the works they do. So now we see his displeasure with these scribes and Pharisees. For they preach, but do not practice. And we know that's not good at all, right? How many times have we heard Jesus call these people hypocrites? And that word hypocrite means play actor. They literally wore masks on stage so that you couldn't tell who they were. So these Pharisees, these scribes would put on their mask and look all religious, and they weren't. They were doing things that they shouldn't do. And we see that in full view here. Their words are God's very words sometimes. But their lives are not the carrying out of those words. Their deeds are not in line with even what they teach. They tell you to keep God's law meticulously, but they don't keep it themselves because they had missed the very heart of God's law by making it about external appearances instead of heart-level love and obedience to a holy God. So listen and do what they're teaching, but don't be like them. The words they speak are from the law of God, but the deeds they do are from their selfish desires, which Jesus will expand on going forward. Verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So now Jesus is going to give specific examples of the deeds that the scribes and the Pharisees do that those who are taught by them should not do. And the first thing he mentions is that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Now, what's he referring to here? It's the many rules and regulations and restrictions that the scribes and Pharisees had added to the law of God. Now, we we saw last week, anybody remember how many laws there are in the Pentateuch and the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? 
613 specific instructions and commandments in the first five books of the Bible, in the law of God. So they had taken that, which is quite a hurdle in and of itself, and they had added to that in, in their desire to, what they would say, protect the law. They built a wall around the law by their oral traditions, by their teachings, by their customs, and by their traditions. So the command to do no work on the Sabbath turned into laws added to determine what defined work. How heavy something could be. How many steps would constitute work. How many letters could be written with one hand and then more letters written by the other. And on and on and on and on and on. And we looked at this way back when we were looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And these additions, these items that were piled on top of the law by human reasoning were heavy burdens. Hard to bear. Anybody ever been overseas and watch how they load trucks? Oh my heavens, we, we were in Africa and I don't understand. It defied the laws of gravity. It defied every physics law. I mean, they got stuff on top of stuff, stuff on the side. They got ropes. They got people sitting. They got, I, we're driving through. We see this one truck coming through. It's loaded with stuff on top. And there's a goat, a live goat, standing on top of this giant pile of stuff on the back of this truck. And when I'm reading this this week, I'm thinking, that's what I'm thinking of. Heavy loads, hard to bear. And they wonder why their leaf springs are breaking. They're wondering why their shocks aren't working. They're wondering why their trucks are bouncing all over the road because they've overloaded it and expected it to bear that burden. I can handle it. It's fine. No, it can't. How many people do we see with busted tires in Africa? And that's the picture that I see here as these scribes and Pharisees pile on Addition after addition after addition after addition of rules and uh, regulations and traditions on top of the law. And they would tie up these heavy, hard-to-bear burdens and just drop them on everyone who was desirous to seek and to please God. They'd lay them on people's shoulders, as Jesus said here. But that wasn't all they did. They themselves, Jesus said, were not willing to move them, these heavy burdens, with their finger. These scribes and Pharisees wouldn't give people any help in figuring out how to keep these demands and laws. And it was kind of a hate your luck that you're not like us kind of deal. We do it. You should be able to figure out how to do it. They saw themselves as keeping all these laws, all these additions that they had concocted, and reveled in their ability as contrasted with the inability of those who wanted to but couldn't. And what it was was self-exaltation at the expense of the people who are failing. And there was no power in what the Pharisees were peddling. And they exploited that to the ruin of the others who were weighted down by their demands. Help them? They need to help themselves. They need to do right. They need to try harder to do better. So you're not even going to lift a finger to lighten the load? No. They need to learn their lessons the hard way. Ooh. Ever said something like that? Boy, I have. Ooh. Ooh. Jesus denounces their pride and lack of sympathy and mercy in their laying down these burdensome rules and restrictions. And then, verses 5 through 7 kind of serve as the centerpiece here as to why they're doing what they're doing. Watch this. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Verse 5 is vital to this whole passage, okay? Note why these scribes and Pharisees do all their deeds. They do all their deeds. Listen to that. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. That's Jesus raising the rifle, shooting straight at the mark. Jesus puts his holy finger on the very heart of the issue of the scribes and Pharisees. They do what they do, all their deeds to be seen by others. Jesus, who sees into people's hearts and knows what they're thinking and feeling, says that he knows exactly why these scribes and Pharisees do what they do. They want to be seen by others. Now, just a side note here. Jesus can do this. Okay? Jesus can see into men's hearts. And that's a dangerous game for us. Be very careful when you think you know why people are doing what they're doing. You may be right, but you may not be. And when we assign motives to people, it's awfully godlike of us to do that, and not in a good way. And you aren't God. But anyway, back to the text. That was just some. You know. Jesus explains again, like he did so plainly and forcefully in the Sermon on the Mount, that the Pharisees and the scribes are hypocrites. They do what they do, not for the good of it. Not for God's glory, not to help people, but for people to look at them and ooh and ah. Their main goal is for others to be impressed by them. And that, Jesus makes plain here, is a wrong, if not the wrong, motivation for their piety. It's all rooted in arrogance and pride. Now, how many of you have been doing something really godly and you want people to see you doing it? Right? Maybe not you. I've done it. Okay. Their self-inflated view of themselves was to be shared by all others. They wanted people to look and say, oh, you're so holy. And they would go, why, yes, yes, I am. Thank you for noticing. It's about time. And then Jesus gives specific examples of the things they did to be noticed by men. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Now we mentioned the phylacteries a couple of weeks ago. They were leather straps that some Jews wore. Um, It was the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6 passage where God said you'll wear these commands around your arm, around your wrist and those frontlets on the front of your head. We... We're not real sure God meant that literally, by the way. But they took it literally. And they would literally wrap Scripture around their arm and they'd wear the Shema in a a box on their head. And these scribes and Pharisees went a step above that. They had really wide phylacteries, right? Really big ones. Why? So people would notice them and be impressed, right? Right? They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. We talked about uh, the tassels that God commanded them to put on their garments. Well, the scribes and Pharisees took those tassels and made them even longer because they wanted to have long, impressive tassels. Why? So people would look and go, ooh, ah, 
Look how wide those phylacteries are. Ooh, ah, look how long those tassels are. These people must really be holy. Theirs is longer than some people's. Why? So people would notice and be impressed. They saw it as being more holy, more zealous, and others bought into it. He also said they loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. These were visual places of prominence, reserved for important people. And if you were sitting in them, people saw you as important. It's like the VIP box, right? At a football game. It's like, oh, wow, they're, they're getting food carried to them. And they're warm up there and we're cold and getting rained on. Wish I was like those people up there in the VIP box. That's kind of what we were talking about here. Don had read at the beginning of the service. Jesus said, I got an idea. Don't put yourself in the most important place. Put yourself in the lowest place. And if somebody wants to come out and say, hey, friend, you shouldn't be there. You should be up here. Well, then you're complimented. But if you're sitting up there and say, buddy, you need to move. There's somebody more important than you here. That's a little bit embarrassing, right? I tried that once. Let me tell you what happened. We were driving to Columbia, South Carolina for a Promise Keepers event. And we were illegally in a van with too many people. Okay, anybody ever been illegally in a van with too many people? Liars. A lot of you have been illegally in a van. So I thought, I'll sit in the floor so they say, oh, no, Jason, you need to be in a seat. Guess who sat in the floor all the way to Columbia, South Carolina? That was me. <laughs> Didn't work. Must not have been very important. Imagine that. So anyway, the scribes and the Pharisees like to sit in these important people seats. And they also wanted to make sure that everybody saw them sitting there. Okay? That was important to them. And that's how these folks thought. And then Jesus says they also love greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Now remember we said back in the Sermon on the Mount many, many moons ago that the Pharisees would literally wear make down instead of make up to emphasize the fact that they were fasting so that people would take notice. And they'd go out and stand in the marketplace on market days so that they would be seen by more people. And they would love it when people would recognize them and greet them and call them rabbi. And they just eat it up. If they're going to do this stuff, they wanted to be recognized for it. They wanted to be a big deal to themselves and to others. And their hearts would swell up with pleasure and pride when all these things happen. So yeah, listen to the Bible they're reading in the public, but don't be like them in what they're doing in public. And don't let your heart be like theirs, wicked and arrogant and prideful and selfish. No, instead, Jesus spends the last part of this passage telling the crowds and his disciples what they shouldn't and then what they should do instead of what they shouldn't. Look at verse 8 first. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. So the scribes and the Pharisees loved to be called rabbi, because that that was a high-standing position, a rabbi, venerated teacher, rabbi. But, Jesus says, you, my people, my disciples, are not to be called rabbi. So you see the juxtaposition here? It's direct, right? And this is so reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. That's what he said back in the Sermon on the Mount. They love being called rabbi, but you are not to be called rabbi. Why? For you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. Now let's look at those two reasons for a minute. Because they're good reasons. For you have one teacher. Well, now who would that be? Who is their one teacher? 
It's Jesus, right? He was their teacher. And anything that they would teach going forward would be based around what he had taught them. The Great Commission, right? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. They weren't to bring their neat new ideas and their fresh perspectives and their new interpretations of what Jesus said. And they weren't to seek people's approval when they taught the Word of God, which was the words that Jesus had spoken to them. All of the glory, all of the praise was to be diverted, rerouted to the person of Jesus. So don't look for the approval of men. Don't seek to have them call you the great rabbi, the great teacher, because this is not about you. And let me tell you what, once you've had some compliments come, it's wildly addictive. So don't let people call you rabbi. Don't let it happen. When they call you rabbis, tell them, don't call me that. It's that serious. I'm not your rabbi. Jesus is our one teacher. And I'm just teaching you what he taught me. You're like, well, this is not a big deal. It is a big deal. This is important. Don't let it happen. Because once it's in your blood, it is a deadly cancer. And also, Jesus says, don't look for the title, don't look for the elevated office of rabbi, because not only do you have one teacher, but you're all brothers. Now, this is huge. And I think it's kind of commonly taught, uh, commonly taught doctrine, that there's a priesthood of believers, which is right and good and biblical, which I say yes and amen to, but we shouldn't overlook the truth of the concept of the brotherhood of believers. And the fact that we're all brothers means that we are all on equal footing. We are all on equal standing. No one is exalted above anyone else. We interrelate to one another by recognizing each other as brothers. You're like, well, you're standing on an elevated platform with every eye in the building focused on you. Hopefully, what's being elevated here is the Word of God. Not this guy. This guy don't even floss right, right? Yeah, get off my back. You probably don't either. We're all brothers, right? We're all brothers of the non-floss, right? But we are to interrelate. We are to see each other as what? Brothers. Anybody got a brother? My brother was 10 years older than me. What kind of heck do you think I went through as a little kid? I'm five and he's 15, I'm 11 and he's 21. But he's my brother. Anytime he tried to get out of his place and hold my face in an anthill, not that he ever did that. Maybe he did. I'm like, I'm going to tell mom, right? And I did. I've told mom a lot. Because we were all under the same authority. And he was not exalted above me. Actually, he got himself in trouble a lot because he bothered me. And I was the baby. And I'm still the baby. Thank you very much. And we all need to look at each other as the baby. We're all brothers. Jesus expands on that in our next verse. And call no man your father on earth. For you have one father who is in heaven. So we're all brothers. And there is no man who is our father. Now before you get upset, this is not referring to your biological father. Call your dad, dad. Call your dad, daddy. Call your, dad, call, call your biological dad, whatever you call him. Okay? That's not what Jesus is teaching about here. He's speaking in the spiritual realm. No man 
is your spiritual father. No man gave you new birth. Only God did. Only God can. One of the base, basic uh, meanings of the word father is generator. And think about that as far as life. Nobody can generate spiritual life except God. And He is all of our fathers if you are in Christ. For you have one Father who is in heaven, Jesus says. So quite simply, there's no religious hierarchy. There's that word again. Where any man should call another person Father. Because that puts them, the Father, in the place of who? The place of God. And I'm just completely bumfuzzled that there are religious groups and orders that use the designation of Father for certain offices in the church. How? How can you do it? How in the world could you say, um, uh, we'll explain this away. We're not going to deal with this. We'll just redefine this. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Well, um, that's, that's not what he meant. No, that's exactly what he meant. And guess what? If you start to refer to some people as father, it's not going to be long until those people expect that title from you. And they harbor that in their prideful hearts because we're all sinners. And then they lord it over others who are not father. And then it becomes something to seek, something to attain to. Oh, I want to be a father. But what brother ever wanted to try to take the office of father from their father? It's impossible. When a brother can fulfill some fatherly duties, that's all right. That happens in the absence or presence of their actual father. That's okay. But the one who is the biological father can never truly be unfathered. You have one father who is in heaven. It's not any earthly person's call to be the generator of spiritual life. I'm going to say that one more time. It's not any earthly person's call to be the generator of spiritual life. Only God can do that. So don't call somebody else your father. Again, your biological father, call him dad, daddy, father, whatever you want to call him. Father, 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 if you want to call him that. But don't look to them as the author of your spiritual life, as the generator of the new life given to you, because only God can do that. And don't think these scribes and Pharisees didn't try to exalt themselves as the fathers of the church. Next verse, verse 10. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, this is not much different than the rabbi thing above, except that this word instructor can also mean master. Or master teacher. So not just a teacher or a rabbi, but a master teacher and a great rabbi. So don't seek that either and don't let people call you that. Boy, you're a great teacher. You're a a fantastic instructor. For you have one great teacher. You have one master rabbi and that is Jesus. The Christ, the Messiah. Or in other words, Jesus is saying me. Not me. Jesus said me. Jason didn't say me. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the master teacher. So don't get it in your heart that you want that title. Because you'd have to take it from Jesus. 
To be the man, you got to beat the man. That's what Ric Flair said. Woo! <laughs> and you ain't going to beat Jesus. You ain't going to beat Jesus. So don't be called rabbi. You're all brothers. Don't call another man father and don't be called instructors. All these things just feed your pride and divide you from each other. And that's not the way Jesus came to proclaim. This is not the way. Instead, His way is shown clearly in verses 11 and 12, which stand in direct contrast to the scribes and Pharisees, which is the point. And we'll finish with them. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The way up is down. And there you go. You want to know what your aspirations are to be in this life as a follower of Jesus? You want to know what greatness looks like in His kingdom? The greatest among you shall be your servant. Boy, we don't like that word. And that's not the pharisaical model of climbing the ladder of public praise and external righteousness. No, to be truly great, look around you, see the people in your life and serve them. The Greek word for servant here is where we get our word deacon. Diakonos is the Greek word. And it means servant. One who serves. Those who are great in Christ's kingdom are always seeking to serve those around them. Whoever they are. Their brotherhood, their non-fatherhood leads to servanthood. And the greatest have in their hearts a desire to serve other people. Now let me ask you directly. Evaluate yourself. Is it in your heart to want to serve other people? Listen, for their good. Not public adulation. Not to hear people say, oh, they're such a servant. But just so people can have what they need and want. Is that what's in your heart? Our hearts are deceitfully wicked and desperately sick. And as the Holy Spirit tries to clean us up, this is where He starts. And it's got to be His power. Seeking to serve those around you, whoever they are. Because that's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. And in direct contrast to the scribes and Pharisees, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You're going to be riding to South Carolina in the floor of the van. Trust me, been there. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. While the scribes and Pharisees were jockeying for position and trying to outdo each other in public acts of external righteousness, Jesus is calling on His people to humble themselves, to assign themselves a lower rank than the people around them. You are more important than me. Because if you exalt yourself, if you try to make yourself better or greater than the people around you, you are going to get humbled. But if you humble yourself, God Himself will exalt you. He will see your service and reward that. He will give the grace necessary to carry on and do what He has called you to do. And while it may not lead to earthly blessings or rewards, you can be sure that what is waiting in heaven is far above anything you can think or imagine here. 
So don't exalt yourself. Serve. Humble yourself. That's the way of the people of the Christ. That is how to not be a scribe or a Pharisee. That is how they're not. So you be that way. Now what about us? He was talking to the crowds and the disciples, right? And that means it applies to us. So we're going to look at application through three S's. Sibling, sincere, and serve. Okay, that one's easy. It's easy to figure out. Let's say it that way. Sibling, sincere, and serve. First application point is sibling, and this points to the brotherhood of believers. There is no hierarchy within the body of Christ. If you are here this morning and you are in Christ, and other people are here this morning who are in Christ, you're all brothers. The brethren and the sistren, right? You're like, what about the women? We're all brothers. Gender bender. We're all brothers. The brotherhood of believers, we're all equal. There's no hierarchy within the body of Christ. Why is this important? Because if you're going to have the right estimation of each other and then have the right estimation of ourselves individually, we have to see that we are all on equal footing, all with the same standing. And a quick scan of the epistles of Paul would show you that his common term for people who have placed their faith in Jesus is brothers or brethren. Look at this. This is not an exhaustive list in the New Testament. This is just Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians. Those are the mentions of brothers or brethren in those letters. That's a lot. I tried to count them and said, my eyes don't work that way anymore. So I stopped counting. It's a lot. Okay? So within the church, we're all brothers. We're all equal. We're all sons of the same father. But aren't there offices? Aren't there elders, pastors, teachers, evangelists, Sunday school teachers? And who knows what other titles people may give? And yes, there are. Okay? I want to be clear about this. There are some who hold certain roles. R-O-L-E-S. Some of y'all jumped into Thanksgiving and started talking about roles and gravy. That's not what I'm talking about. That's what I did. Okay? I'm going to be honest with you. Now I'm off track. Yes, there are some who hold certain roles, R-O-L-E-S, including even some responsibilities and authority, but that in no way gives them power or prestige over other members of the church for whom Christ died. In our culture, we've got mega church pastors, super pastors, right? And that culture has ruined us here. Offices, titles, jobs, platforms, blue check marks on social media. How many social media followers you have. All these things, in our eyes, unfortunately, seem to make some people more important or make us place more weight in what they say than others. But hear the words of Jesus. You are all brothers. Titles and places of power are not to be sought or coveted in our hearts or envied if we don't have them. 
And yes, the scripture is clear that we should recognize and respect leaders. We see that clearly in a couple places in Hebrews 13.7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So yes, there are leaders and we should look to them and do what? Elevate them? Imitate them. That's the call. Be like them. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. You're like, well, that just undoes everything Jesus just said. No, it doesn't. Not at all. Just as in a marriage, a wife is to submit to her husband. Does that mean that she's under him? In some ways, yes. In authority, in the role that she serves. But they're also to submit to one another. Because they're on equal footing. And husband, if you don't treat your wife right, your prayers are going to be hindered. Because she is a co-heir with you in the grace of life, Peter says. So there are roles, there are responsibilities that people have. But those aren't things that we store up in our hearts. It's like, I'm going, to, I'm going to be an elder. I don't care who i got to step on to get there. That's not the way this works. I'm going to be a deacon and I don't care who i got to not serve to get there. It's, just, it's upside down. Deacons serve. That's what they do. So give respect to whom it's due, yes. But we're all equal. We're all brothers in Christ. Do not elevate me as like I'm on a spiritual plane above you. I'm not. I talk about rolls and gravy and dental floss. I mean, but really? We're all brothers in Christ. And we are not to seek places over others for our pride or for our own benefit. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. And we are not to do what they did. So application is if you see somebody as existing on a spiritual plane above you in the Christian life, you're wrong. Repent. Now, can you see what the way they're living and want to imitate them? Absolutely. Yes and amen. Do that. But don't want their position or their title or their blue check mark or their followers on social media and say, I wish, I, I wish 1,800 people followed me. No, you don't. And don't put that power, that prestige that is perceived in the public arena in place of Scripture which says we're all brothers. We're all brothers. We all have one Father. So that's sibling. <laughs> Second application point is sincere. Let me just ask you. Are you a hypocrite? That seems like a harsh question. But we can't read this passage and not ask ourselves this question. One way to evaluate whether you're a hypocrite or not is to ask yourself, what's your motivation for living the Christian life? The Pharisees wanted to be seen by others, to feed their egos. What's our motivation supposed to be? That's what we saw a couple of weeks ago when Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. That's the goal. That's the goal. And if that's not the goal of your Christian life, you're living hypocritically. Did you just call me a hypocrite? Yes, I did. And me too. Anything outside of loving God and loving people puts us in danger of slipping into hypocrisy because we are either then trying to please ourselves, to puff ourselves up, Or we're looking to gain the approval of men, which also puffs our ego up. 
True, sincere, wholehearted Christianity is pure in its intentions to please God, which in turn will benefit others. It does not seek to please others in order to please others so that they'll look at us and elevate us or promote us. And that's tricky too. Because I can start doing something with pure intentions and then devolve into self-serving. I can help someone in order to help them, but then in the process, turn the mirror on myself, take a selfie to remember how noble I was. And I'll post it later and somebody will like it. And that'll be great. If that's the motivation for your service, that's hypocrisy. Am I saying don't take selfies? Yes, I am. That's biblical. No, that's just me. (laughs) But it is very easy to slip into hypocrisy, especially when the focus turns on ourselves. Because that's not what this is about. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Why? Because you're serving yourself. And Jesus would say about the Pharisees, they have the reward in full. When people look at them and say, wow, how holy you are. Yes, I am. Thank you very much. Reward. That's it. That's all you get. So we want the approval of men sometimes. Paul says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now this is not saying don't help people. But if we're trying to do what we do in our Christian life to please other people, and boy, there's a lot of people pleasers out there. My therapy room is full of them week after week after week. And they're miserable because they want to please everybody all the time. Because they want everybody to like them. They want everybody to see what such a good person they are. And when people don't like them when people aren't impressed by them it crushes their egos Paul said I'm not seeking the approval of man I just want to please God now you're going to serve people when you seek to please God but you're not doing it for the approval of man you're doing it for the approval of God if I were still trying to please man I would not be a servant of Christ you'd be a hypocrite is what you'd be He says this in 1 Timothy 1. We used this again last week, I think. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That word sincere is anopocritos and it means unskilled in the art of acting. The aim of our charge is love. And that love is to issue from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I can't act it. I can't play the game. I can't take the selfie and say, look at me. I can't. Because that's not sincere. Are you a hypocrite? Do you have hypocritical ways? Address them. This is confrontation. And it's good confrontation. The scripture confronts us and says, don't be a hypocrite. Change the way you feel about what you feel. The way you do what you do. The way you think about what you think about. Change it all and direct your affections, your thoughts, and your actions toward the person of God, which will pour itself out in service to others. Life is about what? Service, which is our last application point. Serve. The very essence of the Christian life 
is service. Now ask yourself, are you working to become more of a servant in the power of the Spirit or are you trying to exalt yourself in the power of your flesh? Do you expect others to serve you or are you looking to serve others? And be careful how you answer those questions because there's subtleties that sneak in on us in these things. Remember back in Romans 14, we spent a lot of time in Romans 14 talking about what it means to love and serve our weaker brothers. And it was tough sledding. We went slow and we sat back there and ate back when we could do that and I missed that and I need that. Sorry. We sat back there and we what's it mean? Well, that mean, does that mean that I can't do this? Does that mean that I shouldn't do this? What if so-and-so doesn't think it's right? Should I not do it in front of them? What if I'm doing it? And does that make me a hypocrite if I'm doing it, but I'm not doing it in front of them? And I mean, there's a lot of wrestling. And we should do that wrestling because there's a lot of subtleties here. Because it's so easy for I and me and us and what I can do, so easy for those things to take the place of they and others and what we should do for them. Romans 14, 13 through 19. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Notice verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That is the focus of our service. If we are going to serve, we want to serve Christ in a way that shows righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and determines never to put a stumbling block in the place of another. Why? Because the other person is more important than me. And if I serve Christ that way, I'm acceptable to God and I am approved by men. I'm not seeking the approval of men, but it happens. Paul says it this way in Galatians 5. We're almost done. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Yes, freedom. Me, I, us. No. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Those scribes and those Pharisees were always looking over their shoulders to see who was trying to take their position. Who was going to get seated in Moses' seat today? Oh, he got it. Shoot, I wanted it today. But Paul says here, use your freedom as an opportunity to through love serve one another. Serving means that I'm lowering myself to give preference to others. I give up my wants and my needs to see the wants and needs of others met. Listen to this. This is the last verse we'll look at. Paul says it this way. Oh, I lied to you. It's not the last verse. Next to last. 1 Corinthians 4.1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That word servant there is huperites. And I probably didn't pronounce that right and it's okay. I'd spell it for you but it doesn't matter. 
Because what matters is what it means. It's used to describe what is called an under rower. These were the lowest of the low servants on a boat who rowed the boat out of sight of everyone else in the lowermost parts of the ship. They solely served everyone else with no reward for themselves, rowing at the cadence that was even set by somebody else. And Paul said, I want people to regard us as under rowers. Now what you figure dripped down to the bottom of the boat in those days? People got seasick. They didn't have bathrooms. And I'm rowing. And I'm rowing. And I'm rowing. And you know what I do if I get tired? I row. Who stands and says, Jason, you are doing a great job today, brother? Nobody. If I slow down, whoosh, oh, okay, we're all right. You're not flossing. Whoosh, okay. Hard to floss with two hands on the oar. I want us to be under rowers, y'all. That's the goal of our Christian life. How low can you go? Well, we've got an example to follow. This is the last verse we'll look at. And I know I've used this a hundred million times in application, but how can I not? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's your example. What did Jesus have to pour out to do that? Everything. Truly God, truly man, born of a woman, knowing hunger and thirst, knowing sorrow, knowing pain, knowing struggle, and choosing willingly to lay his life down for you and for me. That's what a servant looks like. That's what an under rower looks like. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. That is not hypocritical. That's not self-serving. And you may be sitting here today and you don't know anything about this. You're like, what are you talking about? Because I try to step on whoever I can step on to get ahead in this life, right? Dog eat dog, climb the ladder. Doesn't matter who you step on. That's not the way of Christians. And all of us are born in sin. Every single one of us. And we have that self-aggrandizing spirit in us. And the scripture calls us to recognize that as sin. Call out our need for a Savior who is Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, lowered himself to the point of death to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross in his own body. And he died. He was buried. He came back to life in three days. 
And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the rest of this passage would say, And God bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I promise you, one day you will bow the knee and proclaim Christ as Lord. Why not today? Trust him for your salvation And when he judges you, you will be judged based on who he is and what he did instead of who you were and what you've done. And you'll start to see yourself becoming more and more and more of a servant to God and to other people. And that's the goal. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have a plan laid out for how we are to live as Christians. And it is not in a way that promotes ourselves. It's in a way that lays our lives down, pours ourselves out in the power of your spirit so that you will be glorified and other people will be served and blessed. Father, may we not be self-exalting. May we not be self-serving. But help us to exercise the mind of Christ that is in us, that we may pour ourselves out to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you, Father, for your perfect plan. May we walk in it in the perfect power of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now remember, after the benediction, please be seated. We'll get the baptismal stuff ready, and we'll do that and be celebratory in that as well. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a seat. We'll get this stuff ready. And if you need to leave, that's fine too. We're not going to judge you too harshly. <laughs>